Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 71, The Fall of Fort Henry, February 6, 1862. Even at the moment, General George Thomas punched a hole in the Confederate defensive line in the eastern portion of Kentucky, General Ulysses S. Grant set about doing the same in the west. It would represent a more painful blow, and one the Confederacy could not easily recover from. Grant intended to simply ignore the obvious target, and move on his own desired line of operations. In doing so, he took the strategic initiative and wound up completely collapsing the Confederate cordon. If you recall a few episodes back, Confederate General Leonidas Polk had moved into Kentucky and occupied Columbus, using the heights to block the Mississippi River. He built a considerable fortress there, but he did not look too closely at his maps, nor did he entirely see the political situation clearly. His actions roused Kentucky against him. General Grant immediately occupied Paducah, Kentucky. Strictly speaking, eastern Missouri was his primary responsibility. Yet he had some very good reasons to counter General Polk's move. In early November of 1861, General Grant led a raid down from Paducah to capture the Confederate camps positioned on the east side of Missouri. This went partly awry, but Grant had his first taste of leading men in battle. It hardly went entirely as planned, but he put his first foot on the tricky business of learning battle command. And the strategic picture worked out rather well for Grant, all things considered. First, General Polk widely overestimated his success in the initial dispatches to Richmond. This led to a humiliating walk back over the next few days, where it became clear that he'd done no more than fend off a small raid. In fact, while Polk had a great deal of firepower at Columbus, he discovered himself quite thoroughly bottled up. The reason lay in the fact that the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers flow all the way north to the Ohio, where they more or less merged near Paducah, which Grant occupied. These rivers neatly frame the entire state of Tennessee between them. While Polk's garrison at Columbus indeed blocked the way south on the Mississippi, it left the path to invade Tennessee entirely open. Well, almost open. In fact, the Confederates built a pair of forts to defend central Tennessee. One lay along the Tennessee River and the other along the Cumberland, just south of the Kentucky State Line in both cases. Conveniently, the two rivers flow there on a parallel path northward, so the forts could potentially support one another. An attacker would necessarily need to secure both to gain control over the area. Unfortunately for the Confederacy, General Grant intended to do just that, and the two forts had not been constructed effectively. The reason for this goes back to the rush Confederate mobilization. Tennessee, after all, had not joined the Confederacy until July 2nd of 1861. The state, and much less the federal government, had required no fortifications in a couple of generations or more. Many of the frontier states, by contrast, had border forts. Similarly, states on the coast had forts in place defending major harbors. Tennessee, therefore, found itself in the uncomfortable position of becoming a major target with no fixed defenses in place. The Confederacy sped to fix this problem, but in such haste that they unwittingly created a serious crisis. Near the border of Tennessee and Kentucky, the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers form a long peninsula known as the Land Between the Lakes. This hindered travel east and west, what represented a fantastic invasion corridor north and south. 
Furthermore, just to the south lay a major rail line, running from Bowling Green, Kentucky, down to Memphis. As long as the Confederates held that line, they could potentially keep up the fight for Kentucky. Seeing all this, the Confederacy wanted to build two forts, again, one on the Tennessee and one on the Cumberland, both on the inside of the rivers, that is, in that land between the lakes. Only about ten miles of good earth lay between them. This would, in effect, allow the Confederacy to functionally combine the garrisons. Soldiers could shift to either fort as needed to meet a threat, and could get additional supplies and soldiers from the nearby railroad. All in all, one could do worse than to gesture at these positions, strategically speaking. There was only one tiny problem. The forts hadn't actually been constructed. At the outbreak of the conflict, a 60-year-old Tennessee militiaman, Brigadier Daniel Donaldson, selected two sites. But he had no supplies or men to work with at that time. Finally, in September of 1861, Albert Sidney Johnston took command over all the regional Confederate forces and hopefully brought more structure to this theater of war. After some back and forth with Richmond, General Johnston dispatched General Lloyd Tillman to get these crucial forts built. And this might not, in retrospect, have been a particularly great choice. It undoubtedly seemed so at the time. Tillman was a competent military engineer on paper. But as it turned out, Tillman did a rather poor job. Despite reporting to General Johnston that Fort Henry on the Tennessee River held a very poor site, Tillman did not look for other nearby ground. To be completely clear, Tillman knew the location would not work well at all. As he reported, the history of military engineering records no parallel to this case. He was right, but his being right did not do much of use. While noting accurately that Fort Henry lay on very low ground, vulnerable itself to the changing flow of the river and at risk of being outgunned from the west bank of the Tennessee, he did nothing about it. Tillman did not compensate by changing its layout or by creating sufficient earthwork mounds for protection. While Tillman asked for more soldiers and guns, he did not particularly prioritize the very job Johnston sent him to do. Right then and there, Johnston had no more soldiers or guns to spare, and little hope of getting more. Yet Tillman had enough resources to make a good fight of it if he cared to use them. Yet instead of building a defense in depth and fortifying the opposite heights, he quarreled with his own engineering staff. As we will see in the future, Fort Donaldson over on the Cumberland held a much better position, and Tillman did a better job of constructing it. The problem lay in the fact that if either fort fell, the other almost certainly would also. They had to work together, or not at all. The reason for this was that the forts protected the river, and the Union would need to supply their troops from either the Tennessee or the Cumberland. So if the Union took one of the forts, they could land soldiers unopposed from that river, and then march to take the opposite fortress. Then it would become a desperate struggle to reinforce the command in time. However, as long as both forts remained intact, the Confederacy could throw their full strength at stopping the Union on that side. In that instance, a Union advance could only shift to the other fort by going many miles down one river and then back up the other. Unfortunately for the Confederacy, General Grant had a plan to go on the attack. He usually did, in fact. As we are going to see many times in the future, Grant always wanted to go attack somebody, preferably yesterday, but failing that, right now would do. His attacks did not always work, as at Belmont, but that was all right. 
He had long ago lost some of his reputation, probably unfairly, to drink. So a failure from time to time would do him little harm. But success might gain him everything. Indeed, even his failures had a habit of working out, because they very often confused and upset his opponent's balance. As such, General Grant very often found more difficulty managing his superiors than defeating his enemies. And Union command in the West, at this point, faced a very tricky problem. You see, John C. Fremont was now out, and in his place, Lincoln appointed Henry Halleck. And that became an issue because Henry Halleck was exactly the wrong person to lead an army. Any army. The deficiency did not lay in intellect. Halleck excelled in the West Point classroom, and thereafter even translated some of Antoine Henry Jomini's important works on the strategy of Napoleon. This gave him a reputation as a strategic thinker himself. To be fair, he did spend some time pondering the subject, and he proved an able academic, writing books on law as well as war. There was a reason that no less a commander than General-in-Chief Winfield Scott wanted to have Halleck take over. Yet things did not go that way, and Halleck eventually went to St. Louis and had to deal with the mess in Missouri, plus the almost immediate crisis in Kentucky. And here, unfortunately, his somewhat peculiar character showed a problem. To Halleck, war was a matter of science and maps and geometry. It was not, for him, logistical efficiency, ruthlessly outplaying one's opponent and roaring aggression. More to the point, from nearly the first moment he arrived in command, General Halleck wanted to accomplish one goal above all others, getting General Buell's force in Kentucky under his authority. To this point, yes, the Union needed to establish a unified command in this theater of war eventually. Yet Halleck had as much or more than he could feasibly handle on his plate already, and his path will soon show that he prioritized increasing his authority much more than he did to using that authority effectively. The affair of war in Missouri and eastern Kentucky he neglected, although in fairness, Halleck did put into place an effective military bureaucracy. Following his raid on Belmont, General Grant went up to visit Halleck. He came away almost immediately disappointed. Halleck, who had an oddball habit of scratching his elbows when deep in thought, scratched away and decided nothing could be done before Grant even finished his presentation. General Halleck said that haste would ruin things, more or less expressing those exact words to Lincoln. In fact, though, Halleck just didn't want to move without amassing a force of 60,000 men. Given his attitude towards speedy operations later, he probably would have accomplished this shortly before doomsday. So Halleck delayed and lawyered and bureaucratized and accomplished very little in a military sense. Except, almost immediately, he discovered the consequences to his delaying and lawyering and everything else. General Buell, as we've seen, was out confronting the center of the Confederate cordon near Bowling Green. His right-hand man, General Thomas, then slammed in the Confederates at Mill Springs. And this put the pressure on Halleck. Not, of course, to do something about the Confederacy. The last thing he considered was a way to exploit the victory to further the war effort. But General Halleck immediately saw the need to counter Buell with some victory of his own, lest his own position become fatally compromised. Lincoln demanded action before, on the explicit basis of pressuring the Confederacy at multiple points at the same time. Halleck wasn't doing much himself. Hence, although Halleck originally sent Grant away empty-handed, he now desperately needed someone to strike a blow. 
Halleck's way of thinking had not put a single soldier in position to do much of anything, but there was Grant with a ready-made plan of attack. So he changed course and gave Grant permission to move, and that, it turned out, was enough. General Grant moved as fast as he could, in this case aided by Admiral Foote. Foote's situation was about as confusing as could be. If you recall, the Army and Navy had cooperated to build up, very rapidly, a force of river gunboats. Heavily armed and armored, they actually represented the bleeding edge of military technology, uh, for about all of two months. But each of these vessels held a low-slung, boxy superstructure, with very little visible except for the cannon poking out. The armor sloped down towards the deck, with the combined effect making the ships very difficult to hit, and even harder to hit squarely. Solid shot tended to bounce off, and only a very powerful explosive charge could do much damage. The ships could hardly be made invulnerable everywhere, but the weak points were relatively few. Still, remember that shops might cause fragments to go flying around inside the ship, or damage could accumulate over time, or the odd lucky blow could slam home into a gun port or other weak point. In any case, neither the Army nor the Navy could build and crew all these vessels on their own. So the outfitting at this point went on with Army resources directed by experienced Navy men. They mostly had soldiers as crew, but served under a naval officer, and at that moment, that was Andrew Hull Foote. We shall not detail his extensive career here, but Foote had a long history of distinguished service. Most notably, while observing, but not participating in, British operations in the Second Opium War, errant Chinese cannoneers attacked his small American flotilla. Another man might have decided to retreat, but Foote instead attacked the fort in reprisal and occupied the bastion himself. In any case, these new ships would give the Confederacy fits for the next year and a half. Very little could oppose them except a much larger ironclad, torpedoes, and powerful shore batteries and the Confederacy would try all three to varying degree of success. In the early winter of 1862, however, Foote was very happy to work hand-in-glove with General Grant, and intended to reduce the fortifications of these saucy rebels to kindling. The Union men, notably in a reconnaissance under General C.F. Smith, had already identified the weak point of the Confederate forts, again, both located just south of the now-friendly Kentucky border. On February 2nd, Grant departed Paducah with 15,000 men in transports, plus four ironclads underfoot with three heavily built wooden gunboats. To oppose him, Confederate General Tillman had several thousand men on hand. However, more Confederate reinforcements stood ready nearby. Given strong defenses, these were by no means impossible odds. By February 4th, Grant's command arrived and began to invest Fort Henry. To be entirely clear, Grant did not intend to attack the fort exactly. Rather, he hoped to cut it off, surround it, and force its surrender with the entire garrison. Grant almost instinctively understood the simple strategic goal of inflicting defeat in detail, and he always tried to employ it to the maximum advantage. Defeat in detail means no more, and no less, than isolating and destroying a smaller enemy force and it is arguably the fundamental basis of military strategy. You can have fewer soldiers, poor equipment, and fewer supplies, but if you can consistently cut off and crush small enemy detachments, you can win nearly any war. 
That said, this is as difficult to achieve in reality as it is simple to describe. Commanders have written entire battle manuals on how to do it, but usually your opponent is not so foolish as to make it easy. At Fort Henry, Grant planned a fairly simple stratagem. Spread his forces on either side of the river and have the gunboats pound away in the middle. Troops under Brigadier C.F. Smith, an old but very proud army warhorse, would advance through the heights on the western side of the river, take the tiny post of Fort Hyman, and then be in position to bombard Fort Henry and prevent any escape across the river. Meanwhile, Grant's left hand, General McClernand, would disembark north of the fort, that is, downstream because the river flows north, circle around, and surround the garrison. Cut off and bombarded, Tillman would presumably surrender, but if not, he would not be able to hold those lines for very long. Only one thing really went wrong in all this, but it was just enough to prevent Grant from achieving complete success. On the 4th, Grant wasn't entirely certain whether or not he could safely unload his transports just south of a creek. If he had to do it north of the creek, it would add to the delay and prevent his troops from moving on as quickly as he hoped. So he undertook a personal reconnaissance, taking the Essex, one of the ironclads, forward in order to test the range of the Confederate guns. When the Confederates fired, Grant could clearly see that they had command of the river even north of the creek. There was no help for it, and they would just have to slog through. Ironically, things thereafter went almost a little bit too right. Smith, with difficulty, got his command off the riverbank. Then, of course, he had to march up along the heights and hit Fort Hyman in the rear. And, as intended, the infantry under McClernand slogged through miles of mud and forest while the rain pelted them, slowing both advances to a crawl. Yet that turned out not to matter. The batteries at Fort Henry should have been well prepared to repel the naval onslaught, but instead could barely fire at all. The engineers laid out the fort's battery so low to the water that the river had actually swamped it. They could only place nine guns in line, whereas Foote's modest flotilla handily doubled that, with larger guns also. To clarify, the gunboats, whether ironclad or timberclad, actually carried much more firepower. However, they did not have rotating turrets, uh, then a very new and unproven technology. They could only bring one or two of their forward-mounted guns to bear because of the need to control their heading in the current. They would spin their engines in reverse to hold position while bombarding the shore. Yet that was enough. The gunboats blasted Fort Henry on February 5th, doing serious damage to the limited Confederate artillery. Then they reassembled for a full bombardment shortly after noon on the 6th, this time advancing within 400 yards. This range took into considerable risk, but Foote had taken the measure of the shore battery and realized he substantially outgunned it. Moreover, Confederate counterfire could only strike the Federal ships along the strong frontal armor. Closing the range therefore gave the Union gunners the best possible chance of picking out and destroying each gun and silencing the battery completely. Tillman surrendered after a mere 75 minutes of this. Yet the delay of the Union infantry meant that most of the Confederate men managed to escape. Here we should pause to note there is a discrepancy in some sources. Most state that Tillman deliberately ordered his men to retreat overland to Fort Donelson, but others will argue that the Confederate troops mostly broke and skedaddled under the weight of the fire. 
The reality appears to have been partly mixed. Tillman ordered every man who could to escape at the end and evacuate the hopeless position, but some of the Confederates probably routed without firm orders. Yet it didn't really matter one way or the other. They could not get all of the supplies out, and Tillman manfully surrendered his last 80 soldiers rather than escape, and that was that. Grant, McClernand, and C.F. Smith, all somewhat tired and annoyed at the weather, arrived on the afternoon of the 6th and effectively walked into the deserted fortifications. Union casualties amounted to a mere 50 men, most of whom had taken some injury during the ironclad bombardment. While the ships themselves did, as mentioned, have very sturdy armor, stained fire inevitably took a toll due to the friction of battle. In addition, by chance one Confederate shot struck home into the boiler of the USS Essex, which sent hot steam venting into the ship. The pressurized steam itself was enough to potentially kill a man, either by scalding his skin or destroying the lungs if inhaled. Almost half the Union casualties came from that one chance event. The captain, William D. Porter of the half-famous, half-infamous Porter family, was nearly blinded by the boiler eruption, but he survived and eventually returned to command his ship. In the aftermath of the battle, Grant gave his soldiers a few days of rest, but he already intended to follow up the victory by marching aggressively on Fort Donelson. In the meantime, he had succeeded on several levels. First, he had just cut off General Pope's command over at Columbus, Kentucky, from the center of the Confederate line. And second, taking for Henry, cut the Confederate lines in Tennessee, more or less literally. You see, just after the battle, Admiral Foote began to move his ironclads downriver, again, that means north, with the intent of bringing them upon the Cumberland River in support of Grant's proposed attack on Donelson. But at the same time, he dispatched his three lighter timberclads to range upriver. This they did in fine style, tearing apart bridges and capturing three ships in the process, including an experimental Confederate ironclad. They drove into Mississippi and as far as Muscle Shoals, Alabama, exactly as far as the river remained navigable. This instantly sparked fear in the Confederate countryside. Hardly had the war begun than the Union showed its flag in the Deep South, an ominous warning of things to come. And if General Grant had to say, this was only the beginning. What Grant did say, specifically, was in a wire to Henry Halleck where he reported, Fort Henry is ours. The gunboat silenced the battery before the investment was completed. I think the garrison must have commended the retreat last night. Our cavalry followed, finding two guns abandoned in retreat. I shall take and destroy Donelson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry. Halleck, for his part, might under other circumstances have advised that Grant dig in. And it would, in the end, take a few days longer than Grant hoped. But Grant could not dig in, and, unfortunately, the delay was inevitable. He realized that Fort Henry was just a disastrous position, and he had no intention of permanently occupying it. In fact, he had to spend a couple of days just having his infantry move supplies out of Fort Henry, which flooded so heavily that the rising waters completely covered it. Had Grant not attacked, General Tillman would himself have had to abandon the fort anyway by the 8th. General Halleck, to his credit, did not try to tug at Grant's reins this time. Another battle was brewing, and Grant was just the man to lead it. Now before we close today, I want to pause and mention the fate of Fort Henry. There wasn't really much left of it anyway, given that the river would repeatedly flood and it was just an earthwork. However, many other Civil War sites are preserved at least in part. 
Uh, Fort Henry unfortunately fell victim to an expansion of the river, uh, done deliberately uh, in order to make it more navigable. Uh, so the river today, the Tennessee River today, uh, is actually more than twice as wide as it was in Grant's day at the time of the Civil War. Uh, this actually just completely covered the site. You can take a trail up very near to where Fort Henry is, uh, but it's currently underwater, so you're not going to see it unless you want to go scuba diving. That's all for today. Thank you very much for listening to the American Civil War podcast, and I hope you'll join us next time.